Welcome to the groundbreaking news program that delves into the heart of Mormonism, your weekly window into the unique intersection of news, history, and culture that resonate with the tapestry of Mormonism. So whether you are tuning in from the heart of Utah or joining us from around the world, your favorite news program starts now, where news meets insights and the stories of our faith unfold. Good evening, everybody. And welcome to the Mormon Newscast. Today's date is February 26, 2024. I am Radio Free Mormon. I am joined by my wonderful and illustrious co-hosts on this podcast, Bill Real and Rebecca Biblioteca. How are you, Rebecca? I'm great. Thank you. How are you, Thanks. Rebecca Biblioteca, if that is your real name? If that is my real name. Not too bad for a Monday. I have to say it is Monday. I'm feeling a little like it's a Monday, but we're going to forge ahead. Well, it's been a very, very important Monday. There's a lot of news that has accumulated in Mormon land over the past week, and that's what we'll, what we'll be reporting on this evening. All right, it's called The Prophet's Kiss. That's our lead story for this evening. There are other stories as well. First off, we're going to start with The Prophet's Kiss. We'll then go to Tim Ballard Updates. Ding, 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 ding. I'll be covering that as well as The Prophet's Kiss. Then Bill Real will be talking about unlicensed... Wait a second. Wait a second. That's me. Rebecca Biblioteca will be talking. You thought you could pull one over on me, did you? Uh. Rebecca will be talking about unlicensed chaplains. However you might want to spell that. I think that's Charlie Chaplin. Uh, are there going to be Charlie unlicensed Charlie Chaplins in the public schools? That's what I want to know. I think it's A-I-N-S. Okay, that's what we're looking for. Speech I'll to take that. responsibility for that. I'm in charge. I accept all responsibility for the actions of my crew. <laughs> then we'll go to Mormonism's political neutrality, and the SCMC is hiring. So if you are looking for a job associated with the LDS Church, the, uh, the Society for Corrupt Mormon, no, wait a second, it's the um, Strengthening Church Members Committee, is indeed hiring people to spy on other Mormons. And we'll talk about that, too, because I don't know how that pays. Maybe it pays really well. I'm kind of doubting it because the Mormon church is the employee, but you get to dig through people's, you know, garbage on the curb and find out all sorts of things about them and then report it to your higher up so they can take whatever action is appropriate. All right. So those are our stories. First one's me. This is called the prophet's kiss. I call it, <clears throat> hang on. Let me, let me just do this. Go ahead. Here you go. Thank you, Bill. I'll, I'll take over the con now with the slides. Thank you. So the prophet's kiss, S-W-A-K. I thought that was clever because if you take out the A, it's SWK, which are the initials for Spencer W. Kimball. And with the A in it, it's SWAC, or other words, sealed with a kiss. The book that came out recently, which is uh, basically a recapitulation of D. Michael Quinn's journals, done through signature books, I believe, but the Majority of it is what he wrote. It's just been collated and organized by signature books and prepared for publication. And I know that Rebecca Biblioteca knows all about that. Doesn't she had Barbara Brown on her show talking about it, along with Moshe uh, Quinn, who I believe is uh, Michael's son, correct? Yes. 
Is that right, Rebecca? Yes. Sorry, I was actually trying to grab the book. I was trying to do a little reach over here. Yeah, exactly. This is by D. I'll do a little book talk. D. Michael Quinn is his memoir, actually autobiography. It was found after his death, and it's called A Chosen Path. And I did have the chance to interview Barbara Brown and also his son, Moshe Quinn a couple times about this amazing autobiography. It is chock full of, well, we're going to hear about some of it today from RFM, but can't recommend this enough. It's an amazing book, a window into a certain era of church history. There are a couple of stories that D. Michael Quinn told about his relationship with Spencer W. Kimball when President Kimball was president of the LDS Church. Of course, he became president in 1973 until his demise in 1985. But both of these stories, I'm not sure if they've been told together. And I think they're significant enough, and this is recent enough, that we want to talk about it, even though these stories occurred back in 1979 and 1980. So from the journal of D. Michael Quinn for February 2nd, 1979, I was dressed in my light tan suit. This is, of course, D. Michael Quinn speaking, but decided that I should be honest in my apparel. And so I wore my shirt with wide stripes of beige, light green, and white. I also wore, as usual in the winter, my heavy rubber cleated leather hiking boots. I had wondered how he would react, that being Spencer Kimball. I had wondered how he would react to my asking him questions that brought up controversial matters concerning Clark, that would be Reuben J., particularly of the McKay-Clark tensions, i.e. tensions between uh, David O. McKay and Reuben J. Clark. But I found President Kimball to be very candid in what he said and remembered. Then I got around to asking him if I might be allowed to read his personal diaries, and I held my breath. President Kimball seemed to think for a moment, smiled, and said it would be fine for me to read his personal diaries. He said that they were at his home and that he would need to arrange for me to come to his home to read them. I'm just imagining how uh, excited Michael Quinn must have been to be invited to the prophet's house to read his personal diaries, jackpot. President Kimball got up from his desk to walk with me to the door of the office, and I thanked him also for allowing me to express to him my feelings about my own background as he spoke of his efforts for the Indians. At this point, he clutched me in his left arm while he held my hand in his right hand, and he said, it makes me love you all the more to know that you are Mexican. And then he snuggled his cheek up to mine. Now, of course, this is in the context of the 1970s and President Kimball being very involved in the what was called the Indian Placement Program at the time, trying to get young people, mostly from the Navajo Reservation, placed with good Mormon families so that they could grow up to be good Mormons and fulfill the promise of the Book of Mormon, that it would be written to the Lamanites, the descendants of the Lamanites, and that they would then come to a knowledge of the truth and the curse would be removed and their skin would be lightened as a result. I left his office feeling joy in the spirit of the Lord. Now we go to the 3rd of February, 1979. So he gets to visit the prophet. I think it's the following day. From my journal about the first visit to Spencer W. Kimball's house on Laird Drive in Salt Lake City. By the way, there's only going to be one other page to this, so bear with me. President Kimball showed me the blind, oh, you know, she showed me the binders in which his journals from 1940 to the present are kept in his study. And he set me up in the living room with a card table, chair, and old typewriter. For the next five hours, I read more than four binders of his journals and took typewritten notes on them, while President Kimball worked in his study where I could hear him dictating at length concerning the Logan Temple. Sister Camilla Iring Kimball, K 
Camilla Kimball came and insisted that I join them in the kitchen for lunch. She had a place set for me between them, and so I ate some fried chicken and rolls with them. Just as I was about to excuse myself again in the evening to prepare to leave with Jan, who I feared was waiting impatiently outside, a neighbor came by at the back door and President Kimball insisted that we get acquainted and introduced me to him, making a special point of telling his neighbor that I was a Mexicano or Mexicano. As I left, I said that I would contact President Kimball after his return from Hawaii to see where, and I've got to ask you something, Bill. That slide thing covers the bottom part of what it is I'm trying to read. Do you know how to get rid of that? It's still there. I'll do my best. As I left, I said that I would contact President Kimball after his return from Hawaii to see when it would be convenient for me to come again to research more of his journals. And President Kimball said that would be fine. So that's the first uh, meeting that we have between the two that we're talking about tonight. And then we go to this last page, which is 18 June 1980, some pages later, of course, in the book. This is the last meeting that uh, Michael Quinn says he had with President Kimball. And it's a very interesting meeting that he reports. My last personal contact with Spencer W. Kimball occurred after a banquet in a private room of Brigham Young's Lion House. Its purpose was to honor BYU's recently released president, Dallin H. Oaks. The irony runs thick here. Wait till you see what happens. For doing so much to promote the Clark Biography Project. As we were leaving, President Kimball shook my wife's hand and gave her a little hug, and I expected just to shake his hand and say goodbye. From my journal, <clears throat> in other words, a contemporaneous recorded recollection. Then President Kimball began kissing me on the cheek as he talked, saying a few words and kissing me again and caressing my arm and shoulder. I have a special love for you, President Kimball said in that deep, almost whisper voice that is left of his partial larynctomy. And then he continued to kiss me on the cheek and neck as I told him that I was thrilled to be in the presence of the prophet of the Lord. By now, he was virtually bathing my cheek and neck in kisses. And I put my arm around his shoulder and kissed him on the cheek and told President Kimball that I loved him, after which he kissed me a couple of more times on the cheek. I felt no tears or any emotion but joy and love that seemed so natural. And for the first time in my life, it seemed the most natural thing in the world to be kissed repeatedly by a man, to have him express his love for me, to tell him I loved him and to kiss him. It didn't matter that the man was 50 years older than I. And if we can get have the full screen now on this, Bill. Thank you. I lost all sense of time. And there's a little bit there at the bottom, if we can capture that. I lost all sense of time. Ah, this thing, the slide I'm thing. I can read it if you'd like, because I Would do you, have the you, book. Can you get right that last paragraph, please? Yeah, let me read. Do you want me to read all the way to the next entry? There's two sections. I just want that. I lost all sense of okay. just that paragraph, Perfect. please. Um, I lost all sense of time, but this must have gone on for several minutes in the presence of his wife, Camilla, my wife, and his private secretary, D. Arthur Haycock. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for taking care of that. I appreciate it. <laughs> So that is something that's making the rounds. It's certainly a somewhat controversial, potentially explosive section of the new Michael Quinn autobiography or memoir. What do you guys think about it? Rebecca and then Bill? 
Yeah, it is interesting. And as I said before, this book is full of really interesting recollections and revelations like that, just of the era and his involvement with, you know, upper level church officials, you know, and, and he himself is sort of a part of history as he's involved in all this. And I've podcasted, I think, twice about this exact passage. Um, there is the thought that, of course, it is a you know, a fatherly love that is being shown, you know, and if you My read father on... never kissed me like that. <laughs> I don't know about you, Rebecca. <laughs> Bill, did your dad ever bathe your face and neck and tears and kiss your... We were a kissing family and I was never <laughs> kissed like that by my father or my mother. Okay. Some, some people are a kissing family and I'm trying to see if I can find the, there's another part in here, but just how we kind of discussed just that interaction made him possibly realize that that, you know, because of course, you know, we all know his orientation and it was, it was, it was a problem as far as that era in the church, although he was very open about everything. And so I don't know what to make of this revelation, but um, I don't know. What do you think, Bill? <laughs> Can I add that it was a problem in that era of the yes. United States? Yes. Yes. What was a problem? homosexuality and oh, the expression yeah. of it or what could even be perceived right as the expression of it i mean it i knew seem... kids in high school who were uh homosexual they're such wonderful guys um but believe me they caught a lot of hell from other students it does seem strange first off bathe not only his cheek which would be one thing kissing mm -hmm. the cheek a couple of times but the way so first off i've had dinner with you michael quinn i've hung around him i've chatted with him he seems like a very honest, direct person. He just tells you things the way he understands them from his perspective and doesn't really pull any punches. So when he says that Spencer W. Kimball bathed him with kisses over and over and over again, I think he's being serious. And when he says cheek and neck, I think he's being serious. And so I'm sitting here having to figure out, and it seems so strange to me, ironic almost, that he says that it was the most natural thing for him to be kissed mm -hmm. by a man, by the very man who writes the book, who declares this is the most unnatural thing in terms of homosexuality that there can be. I, I know that there have been rumors out there before about like uh, Boyd K. Packer uh, and other leaders who maybe were closeted homosexuals and that was, and because they weren't able to express themselves, that's maybe where a lot of their anger comes from. And it, I don't know, and I'm not out here saying that uh, Spencer W. Kimball was a homosexual, okay? I'm just saying that this is weird, and <laughs> it's in the book, and it's by a noted, reputable historian who recorded it at the time, or near the time, in his journal. So I don't think there's a lot of reason to question the accuracy of what it is that is reporting, and uh, I suppose the interpretation of it will be left up to the individual listener or reader. It's only well, weird. And if I could just add this one last, sorry, sentence that kind of to me shows how hey, Rebecca, Rebecca, yes. I'm sorry. Bill said something that you oh. stepped on, and he's over there smiling. So oh. I think it was probably pretty good. What it was you probably really funny. It? Go ahead. You said it's weird. I said it's only weird if you make it weird. Oh, I guess that's true. <laughs> these are two yeah, grown Spencer men Kimble who consensually made it weird with his book, The Miracle of Forgiveness. Yeah, but these are two grown men who consensually are getting kissed or kissing. That's. Well, there's Jan there. There's Arthur Haycock, the, the president. I mean, the no. secretary of the first presidency. <laughs> what the heck are they thinking? What went into their journals? I want to know. Yeah. We'll have to look that up. Okay. Do you mind if I read this last sentence? No, I'm sorry, I, Rebecca, please. I think Go this ahead. 
kind of shows how Michael Quinn, what his mindset was after this experience, because it says afterwards, this is um, Michael speaking, I vowed that I would break down the wall I had built around myself and would extend myself fully in love to other males. So it definitely had an impact on him. And I do agree with your assessment of the miracle forgiveness because that book, I've been looking into that and podcasting about that for a while. He definitely, you know, did not want to avoid, said to avoid any appearance of anything that would be untoward in his word. This is not just the appearance. This is, you know, full on contact, you know, in interaction, everything in the miracle, miracle of forgiveness says you stay away from that far, far away. So it is, it is a question, I think. It's a close encounter of the prophet kind, I guess. Well, let's go on to the next story, shall we? Everybody ready? Let's do it. This is my story, too, because it involves somebody that you may have heard of. His name's Tim Ballard. He used to work with this outfit called Operation Underground Railroad. Don't know if you've heard of him. Tim Ballard updates several new stories this past week. I'm going to do a little blurb on each of these stories as we go through it. Tim Ballard update number one, Catholic prayer for Trump meeting. It's going to happen on March 19th, 2024, still in the future. And we have a brochure that actually Rebecca found and sent to me. So I could put it up here on the screen. Catholic prayer for Trump, March 19th. It'll be at 6 o'clock p.m. in Miralago. So that's going to be Eastern time for those of you who want to attend. And you'll see, join us at Miralago along with renowned Catholic leaders and patriots to pray for President Trump and our country they have somebody in there named um lieutenant general michael flynn retired jim caviezel is going to be there so they're actually going to have jesus showing up at this catholic prayer for trump they could have jesus saying the prayer i mean that's got to hold some clout right and down at the bottom left there's a familiar face tim ballard's going to be there so tim ballard may be down but he's not out and he's going to be showing up at this catholic prayer for trump now, if you're planning on just dropping by and think you're going to walk in the front door and have something to eat, that's probably not the way it's going to work because it's kind of pricey. So date Tuesday, March 19th, there's going to be a 6 o'clock p.m. cocktail reception, a 7 o'clock p.m. dinner, 8 o'clock p.m. speakers and prayer. And all it costs is $1,000 for one ticket. Now, if you want to get a table of 10, you get a special deal. A table of 10 only costs you $10,000, which actually isn't a deal at all when you look at it. However, <laughs> unless you get to take the table home with you, but I doubt that. So that's what's going on with Tim Ballard. That's update number one. Um, I think I'll just zip through these and then ask for comments later, unless either of you have comments about anything you want to mention as I go I through. Actually, do you mind if I jump in here for just a second? Not I, at all. I think it is so strange that you have a person in the news for a lot of debauchery and the Catholics who are already trying to get as far away from all the debauchery they've caused in, in public for the last, you know, whatever, 50 years with all the priests getting uh, caught with diddling with kids, you would, you would think they would want to stay as far away from the, the news stories that are coming out, which have Ballard sort of maybe even contributing to child trafficking. And then certainly his, uh, stuff he's going on with the women that worked in his company or worked as agents, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then, and then you would think Jim Caviezel who starred in his movie would go, I did not know all, 
all of this was going to come out. I would not want to be connected to this guy going forward. And he's there too. It's almost like there's a good old boys club behind the scenes and nobody gives a lick about whether someone's in trouble or not. Yeah. And what this tells me is that, um, you know, we've heard all about all these news stories. I've covered them in some kind of detail with the, the lawsuits that are going on against Tim Ballard and all the allegations. They are just allegations at this point, and it appears that it has not influenced or impacted his reputation enough to keep him from being asked to appear and speak at these kind of high-profile and high-priced events. Did you have something to say, Rebecca? I was going to say that I don't believe people follow it like we do, and I don't believe a lot of people at large even understand what is happening with Tim Ballard. They just know him as the Sound of Freedom guy, the mm -hmm. highest grossing movie in America over the summer, and I don't think they know a lot of these other details. Yeah, and on another note, if I were a Catholic, I would want to have a Mormon uh, there who's in lots of legal trouble just to shift some of the focus away from me for a while. He may be Catholic now. We don't know. Yes. Well, it says Catholics uh, and Patriots. Mm -hmm. So I don't know which one he's flying okay. under this time. Or both. Tim Ballard update number two. Speaks at CPAC, the Conservative uh, Political Action Committee. This was this past Saturday on February 24th, 2024. So he spoke there as well. And this is from the Salt Lake City, uh, what is it, KUTV reporter Victoria Hill. A few excerpts from her article about this. Tim Ballard, founder and former CEO of Operation Underground Railroad, spoke at the Conservative Political Action Conference as he continues to battle lawsuits from several women accusing him of sexual misconduct. This is a quote from him now. There's a war on children right now, from our southern border to our classrooms and education, Ballard said at the conference. So many things that children are being attacked. It's a spiritual battle as well. That line concerns me. He continued by saying, Sound of Freedom forced a conversation, especially about the southern border, where tens of thousands of kids have disappeared into the belly of the United States, which is the number one consumer of child rape videos in the world. Unwittingly, our own agencies on the border, he continued, again, not because they want to, because they're being told by the administration they have become a child sex trafficking delivery service. Any comments from you? Let's go to Rebecca first this time, shall we? Hmm. I don't know. It sounds extremely alarmist, and it seems um, like it's trying to drum up fear, right? So perhaps with a political purpose behind it, it just seems like a lot of rhetoric, random rhetoric. Bill? When I hear unwittingly our own agencies on the border, again, not because they want to, because they're being told by the administration they have become a child sex trafficking delivery service. That sounds like a conspiracy theory that would involve numerous agents who don't want to carry out the orders, but are doing it and nobody's saying anything. That, that seems blatantly false until enough strong evidence came forward to show that that was, had some truth or merit to it. That, that seems like you're really trying to rally people by being dishonest and deceptive and just telling a, a BS story. Yeah, I feel like what he's doing is he's trying to capitalize on the problems we're having with the southern border and just talking about all the children coming across. Well, all of those are disappearing into the belly of the United States. So, of course, they could be sex trafficked. But, I mean, that's kind of speculative and kind of a leap from the one to the other, I think. 
perhaps not for him. The thing that concerns me is when he says it's a spiritual battle as well. Because when you start getting that religious fervor in your eyes, I get worried. Okay, next story. Tim Ballard update number three. Ordered to submit to deposition within 30 days. This is from Fox 13 News, February 20th, 2024. Adam Herbert's reporting. A judge has ordered Tim Ballard to be deposed or interviewed under oath within the next 30 days for up to two hours. So a two-hour maximum deposition within 30 days. Ballard is now a defendant in four civil lawsuits and is the subject of multiple criminal investigations. It's actually going to be five because this was on uh, February 20th. And it's February 26th now, and another one's been added since then. But as of that time, it was four civil lawsuits. Um, he has not been criminally charged. Judge Todd M. Shaughnessy also called for early limited depositions of plaintiff Celeste Boris and Mike Boris. And I don't know if it's Boris or Boris. This is a continuation of something I reported on at Radio Free Mormon, which is where Ballard's attorneys are claiming that Celeste Boris stole documents from his email that she's now trying to use against him. And they want that curtailed and that evidence not to be able to be used in the case. So they had petitioned the judge to ask for an immediate accelerated deposition schedule limited in nature to these issues in order to address them up front. So it appears that that request was granted by the judge. The judge is seeking to make a ruling on whether some of the evidence being presented against Ballard should be excluded from the case. Attorneys for Ballard and OUR argue the material was stolen from Ballard's email address and distributed to other plaintiffs. Celeste Boris was Ballard's executive assistant. She said the evidence was not stolen because Ballard provided her with a username and password, allowing unfettered access to his emails. So that sounds like the old defense of, well, he gave me the keys to his house, so I guess that allowed me to, I don't know, steal the Ming vase from the front living room. Is Let's go the, to the next one, shall we? Is the deposition oh, sorry, ever, ahead, is the deposition ever public information? If if somebody's deposed to prior to a case, they have to answer a bunch of questions. Is that ever something that the general public can be allowed access to? Well, it can be, but generally it's only if it becomes an issue such that it's attached or a portion of the deposition is attached to some kind of filing mm. in the future. Otherwise, it would not by its very nature become public. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So this story's not over though. Oh yeah, it is. I'm sorry. I was doing blurbs. I was doing pretty good at blurbs. Tim Ballard update number four. I'm sorry, Rebecca, did you have something to say about that story before I, I hurry on? I just feel like I would love to hear him deposed. I would love to find out what is happening. We really don't know his side of it. And and we keep hearing, you know, he and his wife on, on YouTube saying, we haven't been able to tell our story. Tell it. Do a deposition. Well, <laughs> Let us on find this out. Deposition, this deposition will be limited. And I expect he'll just be talking about, yes, this is the email. Yeah, I gave her the access. Yes, uh, I never gave her permission to take things. You know, it'll be right. that limited. That's why it's only two hours for her. But Ultimately, there will be a longer deposition, and I suppose that that's when he'll get into more of the meat of things that you would be interested in, and I would be interested in, lots of us would be interested in. Tim Ballard, update number four, woman depicted in Sound of Freedom, Sue's Tim Ballard, says her portrayal is defamatory and slanderous. This is by Robert Gerke, February 24th. This is the next civil lawsuit that didn't exist as of February 20th when the last article was written. 
So here we go into this. A Colombian woman. How many of you out there have actually watched the movie? If you've watched the movie, you're going to know who this person is. It's at the very beginning of the movie. And this very, very attractive woman is taking this young man. Apparently, he's a single dad. He's got two beautiful kids, boy and a girl. And she's going to take these kids. She's already said they got the looks. They got the attitude. These could be child models. We can uh, photograph them. They're going to make lots of money for you. And everything's going to be great. And she seems very professional, very, um, very legit. And so the kids then are taken to the studio in another building in another place in town. The guy, the dad drops them off, right? And there's other kids there too, I believe. So he drops them off. Everything looks on the up and up. He's told to come back at the end of the day and pick up his kids. And he does come back up at the end of the day, but there's nobody there. Everything's gone. Kids included. His kids included. And that starts off the action for the rest of the movie as far as that uh, those children are concerned because Tim Ballard's going to rescue them. Okay, but back to this Colombian woman who was portrayed in the movie Sound of Freedom as a child sex trafficker is suing Tim Ballard and the team behind the movie for defamation because according to her suit, <clears throat> she was never involved in human trafficking. The plaintiff... Kelly Johanna Suarez Moya spent 18 months in prison before being released, but has never been convicted of any crime, according to a new lawsuit. Nonetheless, in Sound of Freedom, which grossed a quarter of a billion dollars globally, Moya is depicted as a former beauty queen who kidnapped children under the guise of modeling auditions, piled them in shipping containers, and sold them into sex slavery and here's a picture on the left apparently this is the real moya and on the right we have the actress depicting her in the movie the article continues the suit says ballard built moya into a beauty queen turned sex trafficker to create sizzle for the story i'm sure they enjoyed putting that verb in there sizzle Promotional material for Sound of Freedom claimed that the character in the movie is based on a real person, refers to Moya by name, that was brilliant, and says she was a former beauty pageant queen <clears throat> who was nothing short of a monster. So they changed her name in the movie, and then in their promotional material, they said, oh yeah, that fake name person at the beginning, that's this lady, Moya. According to the lawsuit, the depiction of her as a sex trafficker promoted by Ballard in the press and as portrayed in the movie resulted in Moya being reviled, spit on, and receiving death threat. When the movie premiered in Colombia, there were posters with Moya's image next to the actress playing her in the movie, branding her as the queen of, uh, can you help me with that, Bill? Or maybe I should ask Rebecca, I don't know. Cart Car I would say Car is it Cartagena. Uh, I don't Cartagena? know. Cartagena? I think it is the Queen of Cartagena. Okay, thank you. And people Boy, once again began sending her hate mail and calling her names. The suit states, leaving her fearful to leave her house. So that's the story that's going on there. Let me leave it because that's the end of the article. The excerpts that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm reading from this story. I want to get your ideas on it, but I can't believe this because honestly. It seems like um, it seems like the only woman that Tim Ballard didn't sexually assault 
is suing him now because of the way she's depicted in his movie. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yes. So uh, Tim Ballard can't catch a break. He's he's getting lawsuits filed against him right and left, but all by the same law firm, by the way, who's representing all of these people, at least so far. So, Bill Real, what do you think besides allegedly? I can tell you that I'm smart enough that if I made a movie and I didn't absolutely have demonstrable evidence that this Moya was a sex trafficking beauty queen, I sure as hell would not ever relate my character in the story to naming, you know, her the same name in any way before, after, or during the film as the actual beauty queen, uh, pageant beauty queen. I, that makes, that seems like such a dumb thing to do, even if you're telling a truth, but couldn't prove it. Mm -hmm. That seems so risky. Uh, Very much so. We're sort of used to, used to at this point, Tim Ballard and company not operating in a way that really seems reasonable. And I doubt that the generic, um, the generic thing at the end of the the movie where it says uh, uh, these people, you know, they, they don't really represent real people. You know, any similarity between real people, alive or dead, is purely coincidental. That kind of caveat that they always have at the end of movies, I don't think that's going to get them very far as far as a defense. But who knows, Rebecca? Your thoughts. Well, I finally did see the movie. I didn't see it when all the hype was out. I decided to watch it for academic purposes later, <laughs> a couple months ago. And I was actually really surprised um, just at the quality of the movie. I'm I'm really surprised that it was the top grossing movie over the summer. And I'm also very surprised just by the characterization of people. I refer to it as sort of cardboard characters. Um, they are just stereotypes. Uh, no, no nuance, no gray areas. This is a bad person. This is a bad woman sex trafficker. Here is a good dad who is confused. Here is someone. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Just very, very cardboard in portrayal. It's like a DC you, movie is what you're saying. Yes. Yes, that is. <laughs> and so when you do that, you are going to run into problems because this woman was characterized absolute, a bad person, a horrible beauty queen sex trafficker. And I'm sure there's a lot more to her. So I'm not surprised. And I would not be surprised if there are other suits like this where people are getting, you know, getting hurt because of the portrayal in the movie, which was not accurate. We know there are so many things about it that were not accurate at all, completely fabricated. You mean like the whole movie? I was trying to be kind, but yes, the whole movie. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. At least that's what um, Lynn Packer tells <laughs> us. There might be one fact in there that's true, and it might be Tim Ballard's name. Maybe. Okay. So Tim Ballard, update number five. There's six of these, by the way, just so you know, there's an incoming. Tim Ballard, update number five. Tim Ballard and his wife start a new podcast. Well, this is something that's exciting. Ballard launches Unfounded Series. That's the name of his series, Unfounded. I wonder what they could refer to. From same, oh, this is from the same Salt Lake Tribune article, it goes on, that I was using before. Same attribution applies. On Thursday, February 22nd, 2024, Tim Ballard's legal team debuted what is said to be by the way, Tim Ballard's legal team <laughs> debuted what is said to be the first in a series of videos where Ballard and his wife, Catherine, seek to offer their perspective on the allegations that have been made against him. The first installment also includes a solicitation for donations to Ballard's legal defense fund. In the episode, Tim Ballard says that the women accusing him of sexual misconduct and assault 
are taking out of context things he said to them when he was undercover and in character. The episode referenced statements purportedly made by some of the accusers before the lawsuits were filed that their interactions with Ballard were professional and no lines were crossed. The video suggests the lawsuits were timed to coincide with the success of Sound of Freedom. And, you know, I think I'm going to have to leave a little bit more room at the bottom of my articles when I clip them for these slides because it's leaving out the, the last sentence here. But it's not that big a sentence. So anything you need to know is, yeah, Tim Ballard's got a new podcast. His wife, Catherine, is with him. She is standing by her man. And it's called Unfounded. And if you want to find out the real truth about uh, what was going on with Tim Ballard, then you can go there and listen to his side of things because I'm sure he wouldn't tell us anything but the absolute 100% truth in that. What do you Your think... Cocktail? What do you think the likelihood is that multiple women would uh, collaborate together to put charges against him that are completely baseless and untrue and to coordinate their attack with the release of the movie? Seems slim to me. It's slim. I think it's unlikely. What do you think, Rebecca? Well, I think people want to believe that he's been set up. I think they still need him to be the hero that he has portrayed himself as. I just came across a post today. I think it was actually from a faithful social media site where someone was saying, see, you know, they lied, you know, things like they just they need him to be who he says he is. And they're more than willing to grasp at all the straws that they're throwing out which I think this podcast will be full of so that he can continue to give prayers. He can continue to be involved politically. They need him to be that person. And I don't think they care about the truth. Well, I'll tell you, it was a little bit easier for me to follow the facts in this case. I haven't come to any hard and fast conclusions, but I think it's pretty clear which way I'm leaning. But that's because I had never committed myself to Tim Ballard as the hero who saves children, and therefore he's good, he wears the white hat, all the bad guys, all the child sex traffickers wear the black hats, and anybody who tries to criticize Tim Ballard or take him down is also going to wear a black hat, and they must be a villain as well. I never had to go there, but I know from having spent a number of decades as a faithful and observant member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where that kind of feeling gets associated with the apostles and certainly with the president of the church, that he's the guy and anybody who says anything critical is just a freaking anti-Mormon who's trying to take down the church. It's persecution. It's inspired by Satan. So I have an idea as to where they're coming from. What do you think, Bill? I think you're onto something, but I think... We all sort of see it. This guy, again, on this side of things, this guy is in so much trouble that there is smoke coming from the entire neighborhood. So something's on fire. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know how you keep showing up at Republican dinners giving, or not Republican, but uh, yeah, Trump uh, dinners giving prayers. Uh, you keep showing up with everybody at Catholic uh, uh, parties, and the guy seems certainly heavily evolved still. Yeah, and I think that it's um, a testament to uh, continuing to determinedly and vociferously announce your innocence over and over and over again, and that these are simply lies. These are people who are trying to get you, 
and they don't want these children being trafficked apparent i mean they want them being trafficked apparently he can't understand it how could they get this thing so wrong this was just me and my my persona you know doing these things so somehow that's going to be a legal defense that i was doing these when I, I i was sexually assaulting you but i was pretending to be somebody else when i was sexually assaulting you i don't know how that's going to fly well yeah. he had to do anything for the children he had to do anything to save children and that there's a defense in there mm -hmm. Unlike but, the border agents. you know a lot of people including you rebecca and including me and i think bill too have looked at tim ballard as a modern day joseph smith mm -hmm. and sort of a uh, horrible warning about what can happen with people who have personalities like tim ballard's appears to be which is doing all sorts of things that he shouldn't be doing cloaking them in a righteous cause and then being adamant even when he's in the process of being accused and potentially found out adamant about his innocence and a substantial majority or portion of his base will continue to believe in him regardless of what the evidence is correct yeah okay Spot so on. one more we got one more tim ballard update number six <laughs> this one shows up on ex-mormon reddit a couple of days ago did Tim Ballard threaten all the Exmo commentators into silence? I'm trying to figure out why Nuance Ho and RFM and others went silent on the topic, especially when Nuance Ho announced she was preparing a massive in-depth series on Tim and then dot, 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 nothing. I thought especially RFM would not back down to any legal threats if that is what's happening. Big assumption. Okay, so that was my sixth Tim Ballard update. Just to let you know, that no, that's not what's happening, not because of any legal threats or any other reason. We're still reporting on Tim Ballard. It's just sometimes a little bit of time goes by before there's anything really worth reporting on. Hopefully we've made up for it tonight. And now we're ready to go on to the next segment, which I believe Rebecca will be talking about. That's right. And excellent job on your other stories, RFM. That was great. So I'm going to talk about an article, a series of articles, actually, that I came across in several different publications. Um, this headline I've taken from the Tribune. They did an excellent job of covering this. Unlicensed volunteer chaplains, spelled correctly, not chaplain, like we were, <laughs> to be allowed in Utah's public schools under a new bill. This is really interesting. And of course, within the article, um, someone says, I don't want someone who professes their loyalty to Satan in our schools, Representative Kira Berkland said during a House Education Committee hearing. So you can probably guess where this is going to go. Let's go to our first slide. And I'll kind of read through this really quick and then paraphrase the rest. So basically what this bill is, um, and again from the Tribune, unlicensed volunteer religious chaplains would be allowed to serve in Utah's public schools under a bill advanced by the House Committee, the Utah House Committee on Tuesday afternoon. But critics, of course, worry that allowing religion to have a role in public education could be unconstitutional and could harm the students. It would be up to individual local boards to set requirements and guidelines for school chaplains, including their qualifications, their duties, uh, parental consent, and oversight. So that's kind of a big question mark that I think people are concerned about. Uh, Representative Kevin Stratton, um, Republican from Orem, says that recent Supreme Court filing rulings allowed re allowing religion to increasingly intersect with the secular world is one of the motivations for his bill. So he sees this happen in other areas and he thinks 
in the public schools, this would also be very beneficial. And we'll talk about that. Critics, of course, worry that Stratton's proposal allows religious groups to proselytize to students. The bill does not prohibit volunteer chaplains from evangelizing in schools, as those policies would be left to individual school boards. So a really interesting dynamic here. Let's go to our next slide. So, um, of course, <laughs> a lot of people are weighing in on this, a lot of different organizations. Um, you have, is it Rachel? Yes, Rachel Lasser, president and CEO of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Um, they are concerned about a possible unconstitutional intrusion of a rel of religious nature into the educational system. And she says, um, authorizing religious chaplains in public schools would violate the religious freedom of students. Families should be able to trust that public schools are welcoming and inclusive of all students and won't force a particular religious perspective on their children. Legislatures should instead ensure that students have access to certified school counselors who are trained to help all students. And then she goes on to say public schools are not Sunday schools. And, and this, I think, is a big concern in Utah, <laughs> given that there is a... Um, predominant religious identification here. And there's this thought that these untrained volunteer clergy would um, either supplement or even perhaps replace actual trained school counselors. So that's also of concern if we can go to our next slide. Um, so the bill says that any services offered by a chaplain can't be mandatory for students or, or employees. You can't be forced to go and talk to these untrained, um, untrained chaplains. Um, however, we recognize, they say, that student participation is voluntary under the bill, but we also worry that allowing chaplains to serve in official positions in school could create an inherently um, coercive context for students regardless of the intent. Meaning you can just see lots of areas where the student would end up in their office, um, maybe feeling like they had to, they couldn't say no if a teacher suggested they go there. There's just a lot of room I think for confusion and the fact that each school district would be setting up their own policies. So let's look at our next slide. <laughs> and I had a lot of fun with AI, I have to say, putting all these together. So <laughs> um, we have someone else weighing in. This is Sarah Jones of the Utah Educational Association. And she's concerned about the bill saying that nothing in this bill prohibits a chaplain from doing the job of a school counselor or prohibits your local education authority from potentially supplanting the role of a school counselor in lieu of a volunteer chaplain. So there's that concern that they would actually replace someone who's gone to school, who has a higher level degree, has training, this volunteer person would come in and would replace this person who has the academic background to be working with children, which is really important. Um, she says, there's nothing that ensures that if you do provide counseling, they need some kind of standard treatment. If there are mental health concerns in their process of counseling, nothing requires minimal professional qualifications and accreditation licensed by the state. So we're dealing with teenagers, we're dealing with children, there are going to be all kinds of issues. And again, here's an unqualified person that you're taking very important concerns to. What does that remind us of? <laughs> I guess we'll talk about that a little well, that's later. A, that's so, going to be. It's going to be bishops. That's what I'm talking about. And of course, that is actually the concern here, here in Utah. But boy, they're trying to pass this bill. Um, let's go on to the next slide. So um, 
the Stratton would not specify whether the bill is intended to allow only chaplains from Christian religions to serve in the public school. Well, how could they possibly do that? That's a huge question. Potentially, this legislation could open the door for other religious sects. One group that is eagerly eyeing the opportunity to get involved in Utah schools is the Massachusetts-based Satanic Temple. Now, I looked into the Satanic Temple, and they started in 2013. They're a secular organization. They do not believe in Satan. They do not believe in any deity at all. They are rooted in secularism, science, um, critical thinking, and they, they sort of push the envelope in pointing out these situations where church and state collide and overstep by using sort of satanic <laughs> imagery to just really make a point and push the envelope if that makes sense. So for example, this, this statement that they gave to the Tribune is a perfect example of it. So they say, um, if this bill is enacted, it would create an unprecedented opportunity for our ministers of Satan to have a permanent presence in Utah's public schools. Rachel Chamblin, um, or Chambliss, Executive Director of Operations for the Satanic Temple, told the committee, while I would strongly prefer that Utah and other states do not enact bills that mingle religion and state functions, I'm enthusiastic about the possibility of our satanic clergy contributing to the educational and emotional development of Utah's youth. Now, you can imagine how that statement was probably received when, she, when they gave that to the committee. But again, trying to make a point, right? Do your untrained religious clergy belong in the school if you're going to tell the, what does she call them? The ministers of Satan to get out of school too. It really is an interesting dialogue. Um, so this bill, I think it, let's see. Yes, it's only two people voted against it. It's moving on. Um, so it looks like it has some traction and getting some legs. So it didn't just happen in a vacuum. This started in Texas and has been spreading across the country. There are similar bills in 13 states now, including Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Maryland, Mississippi, Missouri, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and Ohio. And now, of course, Utah is jumping on this bandwagon. Um, so beyond the concerns of chaplains in school, that may cause discomfort to students of differing religious beliefs, right? Not everybody at your student is a Christian or even the kind of Christian, you know, that's going to be able to interact with this minister that you're going to have to come in. Um, the rock bottom qualifications in Texas, and this is just an example where it's been enacted before, to serve as one of these volunteer chapmans, open the door for potential abuses of authority and put vulnerable students already struggling with mental health at greater risk. Because again, these the qualifications are different in every school district. And these are untrained. These people do not have a degree. Um, what's really interesting is that, oh, let's see, students in public schools come from a variety of faith traditions and perspective with vastly different notions of God. For students who do not share the theology or religious beliefs of the school chaplain, seeking guidance from a chaplain in times of distress may actually increase students' stress and confusion and isolation. The notion that the school chaplain is tapped to represent God's presence in school and give spiritual care for public school pop population is wildly misplaced. So again, you're sort of um, lumping the idea that all these students are going to have a Christian background and they're going to welcome this kind of volunteerism in their school. What's interesting 
I think, is that chaplains themselves in Texas have come out and said, no, we are not qualified to do this. So they've actually 170 Texas chaplains have signed a letter addressed to school board members urging them to oppose the introduction of chaplains in school. The chaplains themselves, 170 of them say, because of our training and experience, we know that chaplains are not a replacement for school counselors on safety measures in our public schools. Public school children simply do not face the barriers to religious exercise that, oh, okay, sorry. Let me add this. Advocates say, well, look, there are chaplains in prison. There are chaplains in the military, but that's not the same thing at all. School children don't have those barriers that some of these old other populations do, where you actually have to send a chaplain in to service them. So in, uh, let's see, I think in, yes, in the Orlando Sentinel, I thought this was a really good, if we go to the slide where the woman's standing there with her arms crossed, she looks kind of cranky. I think it's the next one. Yeah, there's a mom that wrote in um, and her name is, let's see my staples on here. She's a non-Christian mother of a Central Florida public school graduate. She says, I am not only concerned about the religious privilege a school chaplaincy would provide, but also for the welfare of students with mental health issues or just the day-to-day -day challenges of being a kid in the world. Could our kids, religious or otherwise, be told to pray away their problems? or get a special invite to the next youth night at church, synagogue, temple, or mosque so that they can get right with God. And she points out that unchurched kids from ages 14, four to 14, and those are children that aren't really associated with the congregation, unchurched, are common targets for religious conversion and public school chaplaincies will be seen as another opportunity for what is often referred to as campus ministry. So let's go to our second to the last slide. She also brings up the point, this is one of my favorite AIs I made today, uh, which school board will be the test case that has to explain to the satanic temple why they, their ordained minister of Satan is not welcome? While I am unconcerned about Satanists who don't believe in Satan, what about a cult leader? Both of these candidates to be a chaplain might have a legal standing if refused by the school. And I'll say that the um, satanic temple, they are recognized as a religion. So the woman who wrote this is not incorrect. And my question, of course, on the last slide, as we look at this for Utah is, could an unlicensed volunteer chaplain be a senior missionary couple? Could it be a service missionary? Could it even actually be a proselyting missionary? That's probably a stretch. Could it be a seminary teacher that not only instructs kids next door at the seminary building, but now has access in the school? Or could it even be a calling in your ward that you would go into the schools um, and be that kind of a volunteer? So it just opens the door to a lot of things that could be concerning. What are your thoughts, Bill? Had you even heard of this? <laughs> so I've got two thoughts. One is, you know what Utah needs more of? It's more untrained, unlicensed clergy yes meeting with vulnerable children. That's, that's what you talk could use more of, right? And then second is which group do you, I'm going to ask you a question and you tell me which one you think. Again, we don't have any research. We don't know the answer. Which group do you think has a larger number of pedophiles among it? The satanic clergies or ministers of Satan, as you put it, or the Mormon lay leaders, uh, bishops, uh, or otherwise? Yeah. I don't even hmm. want to guess, but I think I do have a guess, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, or, or fortunately, I think we should say it out loud. There's a, yep. certainly a lot of abuse within Mormonism. I was doing some research today for an episode of Mormon Sunday School that I'll do here in a couple of days. 
And there are multiple law firms who specialize in Mormon sex abuse. So it's, it's, it's significant enough to have a running gig. Oh yeah. Tim Kosnoff is one of those. And I spoke with him for about an hour and a half today in preparation for having him on the Mormonism live show Wednesday. And he's going to be talking about some of his stories, battling it out with Curtin McConkey. Hmm. I'm interested. Mm -hmm. Rebecca, you can ask me. I am going to ask you, I'm turning it over to you now. What do you think about the idea of an unlicensed, untrained chaplain in a school interacting with your children? Dumb. dumb. (laughs) Every part of that sentence is dumb. And you know, back in the eighties, I was in law school. This whole thing was going on with prayer in school and trying to get prayer back in school. It's always this fight. And, you know, everybody thinks it's hunky-dory as long as as it's their prayers and their religion that's being advocated. And I tell you, I came to the conclusion then, and I haven't changed it since, and I hope you'll forgive me because it's somewhat judgmental, is that all of this activity is just, I don't care what they say. I don't care what arguments they have. That's all balderdash as far as I'm concerned. The point of all of this is to help try and convert these children. That's what it always is. I mean, it's Mormonism. It's Christianity for crying out loud, right? Everybody's trying to get in to indoctrinate these kids in their own particular way. And that has to do with religious. It has to do with political. It has to do with social. And I just wish that everybody would back the F off, leave the kids alone, and let them learn reading, writing, and arithmetic. And maybe pick up some critical thinking skills along the way. That's right. Well, as I was learning more about the Satanic Temple, they do have after-school programs called After School with Satan. And of course, um, those were enacted when, you know, Christian programs tried to kind of move into the schools. And they do teach critical thinking. They do have all kinds of activities like that. So, and I thought about, I mean, I don't want to come across as saying we don't want children to be supported or children to have someone to talk to. But again, it takes a lot to become a counselor. There's a lot to it because these are very vulnerable people and they have a lot of different issues. And I I even thought about what if someone goes in for career counseling to one of these religious untrained chaplains, maybe it's a girl and they say, well, you know, you're not really supposed to have a career. I mean, maybe that's an extreme example, but there, there is that bias there. And I know a lot of times people try really hard to find therapists that don't have sort of a religious bent because you go to a couple sessions of therapy Mm -hmm. and then eventually your therapist says, you know what you need? You need to just get right with God. You know, and you're like, ah. So I know that people go to great lengths to find secular therapists. And I feel this is the same kind of thing. It's just just sneaking on in there. So we'll watch it. It's an interesting story. It's going to be, okay. This law on this is pretty well settled, I think. I know they're hoping it will change and they'll get a new mixture of uh, Supreme Court justices to vote for them. But honestly, when they started having things in school that were religious in nature, it was after school, it's using the school property. Okay, you can do it, but you can't discriminate against anybody else who wants to do the same thing, like this satanic church that you're talking about. And I think they serve a good purpose, frankly, in highlighting exactly why it is that what the Christians are trying to do is so wrong, because it's the other foot argument, right? The shoe on the other foot. Well, the Satanists, that's terrible, it's horrible that they would do that. Well, why is it any more horrible for them than it is for the Christians? Only because the Christians believe Christianity is true. Therefore, it's okay for them. So 
that's that's where this is going to go down the road, I expect, and what's going to happen. So if you're going to allow it for one, you got to allow it for others. And it's already a bad idea. And the only thing that can make it any worse is saying, okay, we're going to leave it up to the local school boards to determine what qualifications, guidelines, limits, all these different things. I The entire state legislature is in the process of passing what is in whole or in, in whole or in part a likely unconstitutional law if it gets to the governor's desk and the governor signs off on it. And these are people, who, a lot of whom are lawyers and went to law school. They actually had classes in constitutional law. They're supposed to know what they're doing. And they're, they're going to be farming out these decisions to all the different school boards and hope that they're going to somehow come up with something that's going to be constitutional. I don't, I, this is destined for disaster, I think. <laughs> However, in the immortal words, I'll, let, I'll give you this thing, Bill, in a second. In the, in the immortal words of Tim Curry, by the light of the night, it'll all be all right. I'll get you a satanic mechanic. <laughs> Who do you think these Utah school boards are made up of? Exactly. People croaking their chins as if they had beards? Exactly. No, I'm just, me wonder, me <laughs> wonder if, if it be more Mormons on the me school board. Me thinks the podcaster doth wonder too much. (sighs) Yeah, of course it is. And this is this is what it always is. We're always trying to get groups of people that are vulnerable in some sense. And it's not just Mormons, it's Christians too. And it's everybody, frankly. It's everybody. And they just want to get these kids and they want to get them in and they want to get them early and they want to get them indoctrinated into their way of believing and their way of thinking. And I think they should all be barred at the door together with people who are trying to bring guns on campus. Amen. There it is. That's my thought. (laughs) And now, oh, that's right. I'm sorry. I'm in charge of the show. So I've got to now turn it over to Brother Real to bring us home with his new story. Yeah, so we've got a couple of them. I just want to note for this one uh, that I did an episode for Mormon Discussion uh, podcast this week that covered this story, but I've got a few new angles for it in the video. I just want to note that the flyer on the far right there came out a week ago this past Saturday, so like 10 days ago or nine days ago. And then the actual annual Lincoln Day dinner was just two days ago this past Saturday. And with that, I will uh, play the video. Good evening. The LDS Church and Davis, Utah County Republicans are under scrutiny after a Saturday fundraiser announcement featuring embattled Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton alongside Tad R. Callister, an emeritus general authority from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. Utilizing Ken Paxton is bad enough. For the Davis County Republicans, Paxton faces trial in April on securities fraud charges, and Texas House Republicans voted to impeach him last May on corruption allegations, although he was acquitted by the state Senate. But even more interesting is the controversy that centers around the party's use of Tad R. Callister to seemingly create the optics that the Republican Party is nod-nod Wink, wink, the one true party. Davis County Flyers even went so far as to signify Mr. Callister with the honorific title of elder, 
in promotional material for the event. Critics argue that this conflicts with the LDS Church's official stance of political neutrality. Callister, a former 70 and Sunday School General President, served in high-ranking leadership roles within the LDS Church until 2019. The issue surfaced when a Salt Lake Tribune reporter shared a flyer promoting Paxton's appearance with Callister, emphasizing the use of the title Elder. As critics raised concerns about the party linking itself to the church, the Davis County Republicans later shared an edited flyer with the word Elder removed, citing it was an accidental mistake. But one should be left to ask Davis County Republicans, why then headline Tad Callister at all? Is he a politician? No. Is he well-known outside of the LDS Church? Nope. What name recognition value, or frankly, what value does Tad R. Callister add at all as the headline name at the annual Lincoln Day dinner if it's not for his being a Mormon church leader? Jared Cook, a Latter-day Saint lawyer, expressed skepticism, stating, quote, this isn't the kind of mistake that happens if you aren't habitually trying to imply church support for your partisan causes, unquote. As the controversy unfolds, some defend the move, stating that Callister's emeritus status means he's no longer a full-time employee of the church and therefore doesn't officially represent it. However, he almost certainly still receives compensation from the church, and citizens and church members alike should question the Davis County Republicans' motives for involving him, as there seems to be little other reason to do so other than to create a visual connection between the Utah Republican Party and the LDS Church's approval of said party. The fundraiser was this past Saturday night, and Callister, who served as Paxton's warm-up act, delivered a 35-minute speech about the role that divine inspiration played in the founding of America. Callister assured the audience present he was not representing Utah's predominant faith in any official capacity, and he added, quote, I have a kinship with Abraham Lincoln. My father loved Lincoln. In fact, he named me after one of his sons, Tad. That's where I got my name, unquote. Well, surely, Tad, it was more than a shared name that got you invited to headline the Republican function. Hmm. What's the chance it's the only actual reason anybody knows you at all? Back to you, RFM. Hmm. That is interesting. I can see why you were stroking your chin in anticipation of that story. Well, at least the two people have, uh, you know, SEC violations in common. What stronger connection do you need than that? And really, yeah, yeah he, he, he has a kinship, a kinship to Abraham Lincoln because he says he was named for his kid. That's a kinship and his dad loved him. Wow. Can you imagine any other good reason why Tad Callister would headline a Utah Republican event if if bringing the church's approval and connection to the Republican Party is not the motive? Well, that's true. On the other hand, I do have to say something, okay? Please. Does that mean that Tad, and it's Callister, by the way, you habitually mispronounce his last name. I think I've corrected you on this before. Mr. Real, Collister, we wouldn't want you have you accused of being racist against him or anything like that by mispronouncing his name. 
So Tad Collister, uh, does this quack quack? <laughs> that, <laughs> that is an inside joke that goes way back. And God bless you if you got it out there. Uh, we're not going to go into the details here. However, however, does this mean that Tad Collister is prohibited from engaging in any kind of political speech just because of his uh, prior or current affiliation with the LDS church? Well, it seems as though, number one, it, the uh, Davis County Republican uh, Party, uh, I, I say party, but obviously the Republican Party, Davis County is the group that represents the Republicans in Davis County. Mm -hmm. It seems as though the only reason you're using Tad Callister is to connect your members of your party to the church, to notify them the church approves of us. If you Absolutely. have a better reason, if you have a better reason, I'd love to hear it. That's one. On the other side of the of the coin is that the LDS church has claimed that it is politically neutral. It does not uh, promote or endorse any particular uh, politician or party. And Tad Collister is a emeritus general authority. You can, again, I don't have any evidence of this, but you can mm -hmm. bet your ass that emeritus general authorities are still paid by the LDS church. They still have the bennies. They still got to eat. And hence, he maybe isn't an official employee of the church, but he's still on the payroll. He still does what the church tells him to do. And he showed up at this, again, as a unofficial nod, nod, wink, wink, <laughs> representative of the LDS church in an unofficial capacity connecting the voters to the Republican Party in Davis County. We're going to have to bring Rebecca in here, and I'm going to ask Rebecca the question, but didn't Tad Collister take care of all that when he specifically addressed the issue and told the audience he was not repeat, not representing the church in any kind of official capacity at that meeting? What do you think? I don't think that makes any difference. And this reminds me of the unfortunate events of Book of Mormon Central that happened to me and my co-host Landon over the summer, because it was a similar thing. There was an invitation that surfaced to a fundraising dinner for Book of Mormon Central, which is now called Scripture Central, and Elder Rasband was the keynote speaker. And it was $250 a plate. Now, we went back and forth with them and were assured it wasn't a fundraiser. That was um, verbiage on the invitation that was used before. They quickly corrected it. Like Sound Elder. Very similar to what you're discussing here, Bill. And it was not, basically the bottom line is it's not a fundraiser, although funds will be raised. They were trying to raise $10 mm -hmm. million. If you're not familiar with uh, Scripture Central, they're they're not the church. However, they kind of work hand in glove um, with the church. I'll read their statement just so you can kind of understand who they are, and then this will make more sense what I'm saying. I took a picture of it here. The statement used to be something like, we can do what the church can't. It was something like that. Um, but now it is, because being completely independent empowers Book of Mormon Central to take calculated risks which the official church would not be comfortable undertaking. And we're talking about apologetics. They can go places the church could never go in their apologetics. They can take make some wild claims. So anyway, we we sort of thought this is really unusual that they're having an, a sitting apostle, Elder Rasband, coming to speak there. It really does show endorsement. It shows support. But they assured us that wasn't the case. And then we were invited and disinvited and invited again and then uninvited. So it's a long story. We went through it on Mormonish podcast and also on, on Mormonism Live. It was interesting. But again, it's an apostle's name. Elder 
It means something. It has weight. You see that? It's a trigger. The church endorses this. It's like President Holland speaking at SUU, right? Elder Holland will be speaking. People took exception to that. So it is. It means something in Utah. It may not mean something elsewhere, but to Mormons and in Utah, that elder in front of your name, it means support and that the church is behind you. Okay. Any closing ideas there on that one, Bill, before you get to your next and our last story? No, I think the church is bending the rules here. And I think the Davis County Republican Party is bending the rules. I went onto the Davis County website on Facebook. I put in a comment that I was pointing out that this seemed to be a contradiction of the church's rules. And the Davis County uh, moderator for the Facebook group said that they disagree. And I said, which part do you disagree with? Do you disagree with the fact that uh, you have uh, a member of the church from a general authority position, even though he's emeritus, do you disagree that he's paid? Do you disagree that he is representing the church? And there's another good reason, maybe another good reason to have him on. Uh, I threw out a bunch of things, but again, I, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm sort of stumbling here. But um, they never responded to my 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 comment. I pointed out several flaws in just saying they disagreed. I wanted to know where they disagreed. And it seems as though there really is no good explanation for this act than that the Republican Party in Davis County collaborating with the LDS Church, uh, and I can't see any other way around it. Um, he's written books, but anybody read them? Anybody outside the church read? You know, Tad Callister's a nobody. You don't headline functions with a nobody. You put somebody that everybody recognizes. And I did note from your recapitulation of what Tad Collister spoke about that it did sound like a distinctly Mormon take on American history. Yeah, Mormons more than anybody have this really cool story about the founding fathers and the Constitution and the White Horse prophecy. There's nobody better to give a uh, a faithful founding father, great country raised up by God than Mormons, and uh, he certainly played the part. It seems to have been a message designed specifically for the Mormons that were hoped to be in attendance. Yeah, it sure does, doesn't it? Hmm. Hmm. It occurs to me. Hmm. I can argue both sides of the issue. Yeah. So, Bill, I want, you, I want you to go this last story now. I'm very excited about this because I'm thinking about switching careers, even at this late stage in my life. This looks like a good opportunity for me. And, and you should, because the Strengthening Church Members Committee, the SCMC, is hiring. Now, for folks who don't know, we should give a little bit of background. What is the Strengthening Church Members Committee? The Strengthening Church Members Committee was established in the mid-1980s for the purpose of maintaining files on every member of the church regarded as critical of LDS policies or as too liberal, unquote. Its, quote, total number of staff members and operatives is unknown. Unquote. This is from D. Michael Quinn, who we talked about earlier in the story about the prophet's kiss. The church put out a statement in 1992 where they both uh, disavowed that the Strengthening Church Members Committee existed and did what it did. And then by the end of their statement, they acknowledged that the Strengthening Church Members Committee did exist and it did do what people claimed that it did. Can I just mention, Bill, that that was in the context of it accidentally being leaked, its existence, yeah. by a memo being made public. And the memo was about the substance of the memo, but the top of the memo said it was addressed to the Strengthening Church Members Committee, and some perspicacious reporter said, 
what the hell is the Strengthening Church Members Committee? And things fell apart from there. That's leading to the issuance of this statement. Yeah, that's when the secret, that's when the cat got out of the bag, huh? Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a quote here from Elder Oaks uh, where he acknowledges it. There is the uh, image up above his quote when uh, there was a document that leaked that showed that Elder Christofferson, Elder Zwick, Elder Robbins, and Elder Evans were all part of the Strengthening Church Members Committee. It is always headed up by, I believe, two apostles who see that group, oversee it. Uh, Elder Oaks explained that local leaders are informed by church headquarters about the members who may possibly be violating church standards. The church is strengthening the, the church members committee. They don't have the church in there, but the church is strengthening the members committee, pours over newspapers and other publications and identifies members accused of crimes, preaching false doctrine, criticizing leadership or other problems. The information is forwarded on to the person's bishop or stake president who is charged with helping them overcome problems and stay active in the church. That's the Deseret News. October. That's how they lead that list with accused of crimes. When yeah. really what they're interested in is what follows. Preaching yeah. false doctrine, criticizing leadership. That's the one they're really worried about. Yep. And there are two other quotes. So the Oaks quote is also on the right-hand side, but there's two other ones. The Strengthening Church Members Committee has also been known to make recordings of presentations by church members in public forums and university classrooms. In principle, then, any Mormons who publicly express an opinion on Mormon doctrine, leadership, or behavioral standards that is critical is a target. And so now you know what the Strengthening Church Members Committee is. I'll, I'll leave you one more note, which is that uh, maybe about a year and a half ago, uh, a document came out that was leaked that noted that the members of the Strengthening Church Members Committee leadership were an Elder Pearson, a, an Elder Shane Bowen, and an Elder Bragg. I put this on my Facebook page, noted that the head of the Strengthening Church Members Committee had been leaked and noted to people who it was. And within a day, I get a message from uh, Elder Shane Bowen, a member of the Strengthening Church Members Committee. I get a message from his son, Trevor Shane Bowen, who informs me after I leak the information that if I hurt his dad, he will pay it back because he's vicious. I proceeded to file a police report and the police did go to his home and asked him, to knock off his childish behavior, uh, but also threatening too, right? So uh, what does that lead us to is what's happened recently, which is about uh, five days ago or so, six days ago on hey, Reddit. Bill, can, I just, can I just interrupt here? Please. I know you expect it more than Rebecca, but um, what, what does it say about a church's organization that is so secret and so uh, possible to be perceived as dirty and wrong that if the leadership of it is leaked and made public that the son of one of these people automatically thinks that that has the potential to hurt his dad so much that he's going to get back at you and remind you that he's vicious what i'm trying to say is what church has a has a committee like this it sure as hell isn't the red cross most people are proud to find their family members in leadership. Most people brag about things like that when yeah, they're Mark serving. Mark does that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Elder Mark Bragg. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will note, I mean, this is a church that has Danites and Whistling Whittlers. Uh, it has uh, Blood Atonement. Um, it, it has a history, Mountain Meadows Massacre, uh, Desnat. This is a church with a history within 
and connected from the outside of violent actions. And now you, you acknowledge that you have a committee that essentially spies on people and then supplies local leadership with reports of that so that we can keep everybody in line, keep them thinking the same way. And as you pointed out in the, uh, the rules of the game that you, if you criticize Mormonism too much, they will find a way to hide you. And some of us have in fact been hidden. Well, they've got a file on me. We know that's the case. I called him up and talked to him about it. They've got a file with my name on it. And my goal is to make that file so big and so heavy that it will give you guys a hernia when you pick it up. Because we know you're watching. You're welcome to join. And we only ask that you give us a modest donation for our time and effort in educating you. If there's about- a hard copy, they've got their own cabinet for you. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, I want to get Rebecca's opinion, but let me share this part first, Rebecca, and then I want to get your two cents on what you think of this latest news. Uh, there was uh, about five days ago or so, there was a thing that came out on ex-Mormon Reddit that noted that there was a job opportunity that sounded a lot like the Strengthening Church Members Committee. And so uh, the listing for the job opportunity is in the top left, but I blew up the part that said job description It's now called the Social Listening Team. Now, that's a cool name in 2024. The Social Listening Team is responsible for maintaining awareness of online content and conversations about the church with emphasis on social media content. Social media team members use this information to conduct analysis and prepare reports to assist church leaders and other organizational leaders in their responsibilities. Team members use subscription tools and other industry techniques to aggregate and analyze content. I think it is strange as hell to maintain an organization within your within your system that does really dirty work, and you simply change the name to throw people off the track, but you keep doing the dirty work. Uh, that, to me, seems uh, interesting. And I just want to note, too, I think there are two possibilities. One, the Strengthening Church Members Committee has had its name changed so that we don't pick up on it as easily and we don't make the connection as easily. And it's been changed to the social listening team. Or what I actually think might be more likely is that the social listening team is not aware of how the information is used. And so they work with the information from them simply filtering up to the SCMC. The SCMC is what does the dirty work. The people underneath do a certain job observing social media stuff, but they don't exactly know why they're doing that or what it's used for. And that would be my hunch is that the Strengthening Church Members Committee still exists because it's just more and more bureaucracy in a system that already does plenty of it. I would my I would bet that creating distance between the people who do the work on the ground and the leaders who make the unhealthy decisions about how that information is used, that a separation of those two levels is better for the system to keep doing the dirty work. Hmm. I'm pretty sure that you're right. At least and if, if we had a flow chart, which we're not allowed to see, we don't even get to see the SCMC on a flow chart, but probably underneath that are different groups that report to them. And this is probably one of them that does this specific aspect of what the SCMC is about. I want to ask Rebecca a question, which is what do you do when you are a member of the church with a testimony who's assigned to watch Mormonism live week after week in order to compile reports. I mean, are these members just cannon fodder? Because they can't last long in that position 
before they're out of the church and they need a replacement and they need to post an ad for a new position like this one. What do you think, Rebecca? Yeah, that was my thought. When I came across this, first of all, I wanted this job because I already do this, right? I, I work full time, but I do this on the side. I'm always watching, looking, listening for things to podcast about, right? I have people, friends, associates that feed me information. I'm already doing this, but I am not being compensated and I'm doing it for a different reason, you know, just for content and for podcasting and, and posting and things like that. So I know on this thread with this job, the person that had come across it um, posted it and some other people were weighing in. Somebody said that they sort of were in the know as far as how church salary structures worked. And they thought this job might be a 90,000 plus um, like a very high paying job as far as they had kind of analyzed what, what they were looking for. But I agree, Bill, I think you're right. I think there's this structure in place and I believe that these people could just be, you know, they're scraping data. They're scouring social media. I agree with you, RFM. It reminds me of a job that I saw also with the church where they were looking for a creative writer to work on the saints books. And I'm thinking, how long can those people last also when they have to take church history and write about it creatively to make it palatable for the common members? So I agree. I look forward to whoever is on this team, the social listening team, hopefully looking at all of our content and maybe it makes them think about some things. So I think it's, I think it's positive. I want to say, Rebecca, that I think you would be a natural for this job because it <laughs> is what you all, I'm sorry. Are you saying I'm nosy, a busybody? <laughs> no, I'm saying you got your fingers on the pulse. You know what's <laughs> happening. You are everywhere in the post-Mormon space, and you know it all. And so this would just be getting paid by the church for what right. you're already doing. I think you'd be a great candidate for the job. And if you want, I will write you a letter of reference. That is so kind. But, you know, I feel like in the post-Mormon space, we do do um, a lot of things that are beneficial to the church by watching. Sometimes they'll put out content that maybe has some verbiage that they might not have aware, be aware is inappropriate, and we watch it, and we bring it to their attention by making posts about it, and they often change it. I'm thinking of the Mormon pamphlet on... Um, when someone is sexually active as a married person, and then perhaps they're divorced and they're no longer sexually active until they become married again. And the pamphlet said something like, what can we do now to fill the holes that were once filled with sex, right? Mm -hmm. Instantly, all post-Mormons jumped on this. Um, Kara Nuanced Ho did a TikTok and very quickly that was changed. Yes. So I we thought you were talking about the, the, that moment in the barn she'll never forget. Th that moment in the barn is more recently. There was something about a threesome with Jesus, a marriage pamphlet. We're watching and we're helping and we're putting that information out so that it can be changed. If only we had been around when uh, the article was put out, Uranus testifies of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't remember that. Maybe one. yours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making this up. Wait, what? Okay, Bill, look it up. Uranus testifies of Christ. Is that the name of a person? I mean, in that context? A Should person? I turn on my safe filter? You mean Christ? Or, no, I'm saying how is that even in context? Living what's the, what's the, the honor context of publishing of it? that article? Okay. It was written by a guy. I can't remember his name anymore. I think his last name was Pratt, and he was busy writing all these articles about how all the ast astronomical constellation every and everything That's had the spiritualized okay. meaning of, and it was all about okay. Mormonism and Jesus. <laughs> do you have it there, my friend? I do. If you give I me just a second one, to I'm share sorry. it. <laughs> See, I mean, it's not like it's hard to find. Just type in Uranus testifies to Christ <laughs> and up it comes. 
Oh, <laughs> they John P. Pratt. It. I was right about Pratt. They changed yeah. it. What year they was that? Planet 2004, there. 2004, does it say? Yeah, 2004. <laughs> oh, they just... they added the planet Uranus. Okay, yeah. they did they did add the planet Uranus. Originally, it was just Uranus testifies of Christ. Can you stop saying that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's oh. what it was. Somebody and if we had been around file. then, yes. if we had been around then, we could have mocked that enough that hopefully they would have changed. Well, maybe they have changed it. Yeah. That's why they have changed it. Somebody well, the finally came one to is a great example. and said, hmm, that sounds wrong. <laughs> all right so if anybody wants to apply for that job and try and beat rebecca out for it go ahead and um i think that's all we have does anybody have any closing thoughts before i close out the show i i only want to know because i don't want it to ever die in the historical record but mormon stories did an interview with a gentleman who posed as a female on social media joined Facebook groups of ex-Mormons. Again, they worked for the church. This person, a male, interviewed with Mormon stories and said, uh, I used to work for the church and I was sort of unofficially encouraged to join all the groups that the ex-Mormons, post-Mormons, nuanced Mormons were in and to pose as one of them and to collect data from the people who are criticizing the church. Folks may also remember there was a person in social media named Pasco Wellington who did the same thing, not connected to this person, but there was a false persona who had joined all the ex-Mormon groups, collected information, ended up sharing this information, got shared with the local bishop who held a disciplinary court. The person that came to the court noticed that the Facebook images were under the profile of Pasco Wellington. It was leaked that Pasco Wellington had infiltrated all of these groups to collect data. And at that very moment, Pasco Wellington disappeared. I just want folks to realize that when you're out there and you're participating in private Facebook groups, venting about the church, they are always watching you always because the strengthening church members committee or the social, the social listening team is a real thing. And so you should always at least only say what you are comfortable having get back to your local leadership, maybe your parents or whatnot, if they're in the same ward as you and uh, make those kinds of choices being informed that that happens. Yeah, and if one of the members of the discussion group reaches out to you with a personal message and wants to ask and find out what your real name is and other personal information about you, you should think twice before sharing it. Yeah, and what RFM's referring to is a episode where he calls the Strengthening Church Members Committee and that episode, I don't remember what number it is, but it is one of the funniest episodes I'd ever listened to of RFM. Well, thank you. I actually was just referring to Pasco Wellington, but I'm glad that you thought of me when I said it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, everybody. You know, next Monday is going to be the first Monday in March. It may be different. It may be uh, mainly because Bill, uh, Bill's going to be where he always is down there in Southern, Cali uh, Southern California, <laughs> you wish, Southern Utah. Southern Utah, but I'm going to be in Southern Utah as well for the Thrive uh, Conference. And I think Rebecca is going to be there as well. And that goes through the weekend. And uh, Monday night of next week is kind of up in the air. We'll come up with some way of keeping you up to date and up to speed on what's happening in the Mormon universe. I think I should also mention a couple of words about John DeLynn, since his absence here has not gone completely unnoticed by the crowd. John DeLynn, he's, he's got a lot of 
irons in the fire. He's got a lot of things that he's doing. And frankly, he came to the point, I think, where for now, this was one additional thing that uh, just became too much for him to be able to handle with all of his other responsibilities. So he's taking care of that. And hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, sometime in the not too distant future, he will rejoin our merry band. So thank you, everybody, for watching. We look forward to seeing you in some capacity or other next Monday in March for the next Mormon newscast. Thanks for joining us, and good night, all.